Hello, this is Lucas, coming at you with your Arts Fuse episode. So this is going to be a bit of a different episode than we've done before. Not in a good way, but not in a bad way either. If I sound a little bit funny, it's because I'm recording from my apartment, not from our usual studios at Somerville Media Center. And the reason why I'm doing that is because you guys need some content some fresh, fresh content. And we had planned and worked on bringing you a new great episode where we interview uh, local Boston musician Ryan Lee Crosby, but I screwed up the audio. So we're going to do a plan B and give you a little bit of a bite-sized Arts Fuse episode with some traditional stuff straight from the magazine, and we're going to give you an arts update about the kinds of things that you can see coming up over the next few weeks in the Boston area, and also some of the more far-flung locations of New England. I had actually made this mistake with the audio before, and you'll probably know on our second episode, there's a, uh, a segment where it just does not sound good, and we've reached the point in the Arts Fuse podcast where it's just no longer acceptable to be releasing material that is of uh, basically unlistenable quality. That's not to say that the conversation or the interview or the content was really bad. I think we had a, a really good time with Ryan Lee Crosby and we apologize for the uh, mistake on my part and we hope to have him on the show again. Uh, he's a fantastic musician and he's extremely knowledgeable about um, all kinds of American blues as well as some um, North Indian raga music, which he's very much influenced by as well. So we apologize for that. But what I'm going to do now is uh, give you a little bit of an overview about some of the more exciting pieces, at least to me personally, that are in the magazine right now. And then I'm going to give you an arts update from, from coming attractions. And then after that, we have a little bit of bonus material that was left over uh, from our interview with Lloyd Schwartz, which was, I guess, the last episode that we actually did post. Uh, he reads a couple of more poems, uh, and we share a couple more stories, and that'll do it for this uh, bite-sized episode of The Arts Views. So I apologize for the disclaimer. I apologize uh, for those of you who are dying for some slightly new, for, for new content. Uh, and we'll get another episode out to you relatively shortly after you get this one as well, so you won't have to wait so long. So before we jump to the bonus material with Lloyd Schwartz, I just want to read you a couple of quick things that I think are kind of neat. I mention a, or I tell a brief sort of anecdote from my own personal family history about an Allen Ginsberg sighting that my father had when he was living in New York in the 80s. And, you know, it's family lore, so I can't exactly attest to all the details, but uh, it's recorded, and that will become the history <laughs> as soon as people start listening to it. Uh, but it's a story I'd, uh, I've, I've heard my dad tell a couple times about meeting, or not meeting, but it's about seeing Allen Ginsberg, uh, who Lord Schwartz, of course, had met at some point in his career, uh, and... He met him when my father was a uh, communist uh, back in the 80s, living in New York City at the time, and he was uh, organizing with a Trotskyist group, and he had to go meet with David McReynolds, who was the Socialist Party USA candidate for president uh, at the time. And while I can't attest to all the details, and I may have elaborated or made up a couple of things, I do want to read a couple of things that uh, provide proof that uh, the story is at least uh, historically possible, if not entirely historically accurate. Uh, from the Allen Ginsberg, um, fr from AllenGinsberg.org, here's a letter that David McReynolds had written to Allen uh, much earlier than when my father would have known him. Uh, this is dated March 18, 1960, so almost exactly uh, 59 years ago, and. It's addressed to Allen Ginsberg, who was living at the time on East 2nd Street. Dear Allen, I know you aren't political, and I think 
Furthermore, you aren't even in the States, but perhaps you may want to want to join in signing the enclosed statement, and perhaps to suggest others who should be asked to sign. Why don't you guys organize a great Mardi Gras type affair for New York and the village? Why not? Why just Brazil, France, and New Orleans? Why can't we have a real, wild, honest, uncommercial, authentic, hip, swinging, bizarre, naked street dancing, champagne, tippling, tit-tossing, pelvis-pushing, masquerade ball, with everyone turning into whatever they are dressed as, spiders and queens, Indians and cowboys with real guns that ejaculate. There isn't anyone to do this kind of madness, this symbolic spring ritual, this sanity-making explosion, except for the beats. Sincerely, David McReynolds. P.S. Peter, if Alan is gone, why don't you sign the statement? So they didn't know each other. They were friends. And the Peter is, of course, uh, Peter Orlovsky, as I'm sure you can probably guess. Uh, and here's another little anecdote from alanginsburg.org. Uh, from I Celebrate Myself, The Somewhat Private Life of Alan Ginsberg, 2006 book from Bill Morgan. The anecdote is provided by David McReynolds, and the anecdote leads off the volume. One evening, while out buying the New York Times, Allen Ginsberg stopped to talk to a friend on the street while Peter Orlovsky went into a store. As they were chatting, a bizarre scene began to unfold on the sidewalk a few feet away. A woman, either drunk or on bad drugs, was stretched out on the pavement, one arm being yanked by her boyfriend who was shouting, Come on, you goddamn bitch, get the fuck up. The woman was ignoring him, but with her free hand she was reaching toward a ferocious-looking dog, but not quite within her reach. The dog's owner was struggling to hold the canine back when the leash and yelled, Keep your hands away, he'll bite. Instead of pulling away from the sharp fangs of the beast, the woman began calling to it with a raspy voice. Here, doggy, doggy. The animal snarled and strained at the leash, trying to snap at the woman who continued calling drunkenly to it. Meanwhile, the woman's partner was struggling to get the woman onto her feet, so frustrated that he was on the verge of punching her. This is not a very uh, PC story, as you can tell. All this made the dog strain harder on the leash to the point where his owner could barely control him. By now, everyone was screaming and there was nasty violence in the air. At that moment, while others on the sidewalk were beginning to move away to avoid the obvious conflict that was about to erupt, Alan walked over to the woman and held out a bag of cookies. Would you like a Fig Newton, he asked calmly. In an instant, the tension of the situation disappeared as everyone stared at this new lunatic. The dog owner was able to yank the beast away and walk off down the street. The drunken woman looked in bewilderment at Ginsburg, who continued, Oh, I haven't introduced myself. My name is Alan, and this is my friend David, gesturing towards the man he had been talking to. By that time, the woman's friend had dragged her to her feet, muttering something about Alan being crazy, and the two staggered away arm in arm. Well, Alan said to his friend, would you like a cookie? Peter came out of the newsstand with the paper, and the incident was all but forgotten. But once again, Alan had proved himself a fearless and spontaneous peacemaker. So, there's a couple of instances from the past of David McReynolds and Allen Ginsberg. So when I tell the story later on in the episode, uh, at least the possibility of the story that I tell is, uh, if not ineluctable, then at least within the limits of the diaphane. That and no more. So first up is a film that a lot of people I'm sure will be talking about and probably want to see. It's the latest from Jordan Peele, a film called Us, which stars Peele himself and uh, Lupita Nyong'o. It's also got Tim Heidecker in it, which is good to see uh, Tim Heidecker in some uh, mainstream films these days. And most of you will remember a few years ago his uh, debut, Get Out, uh, was really a sensation. Uh, a uh, moral allegory, an allegory about racism in the U.S., but above all else, I believe Jordan Peele's main concern is to make good horror films, and I believe that Us, even though I haven't seen it yet, uh, is, uh, is, is another example of him attempting to make a good film that is available to a popular audience or accessible to a popular audience, but at the same time 
carries with it uh, many layers of interpretation and meaning that keep people guessing, that spur on critics, that lead to uh, debates that can, you know, live long after a film will leave theaters. And I, I happen to believe that these make for some of the better films, and especially since it's important for people to keep track of popular cinema, because popular cinema is responding to uh, mass psychology, or it's influencing mass psychology, is um, working within the contours of the country as a whole, the political times as a whole, the major social issues that are often, you know, boiled down to talking points or sound bites. And with popular cinema, or with horror specifically, what you can do is you can make the monster, or in this case is the film Us, you know, the monster is his apparent sort of doubles of the family that is under siege in the film uh, are, are are just versions of themselves, just flip side, or, or some, some alternate version of themselves, not necessarily opposites, but uh, from a different part of reality. In experimenting with what the monster actually is, or in experimenting with the form of the monster in a familiar style, in this case, you know, the family trapped inside the house, uh, you know, on vacation, it's an unfamiliar setting, but it's also the home, it's the hearth, that which has to be defended, tradition, uh, standard social uh, foundations being attacked from something that is outside or external. It's the stranger comes to town, it's, you know, they live, it's uh, funny games, you know, it's, it's any number of of films that uh, we, we recognize the trope. And Tim Jackson gives the review on the Arts Fuse, and Tim Jackson says Us is double-faced. The title is both a description of the creatures who double as humans, and Us as in all of us. Our veneer of middle-class respectability glosses over the volatile reality of a disenfranchised population, desperate and seething. Us is a comic horror allegory about the revolution of the underclass. Now, that's quite a statement from Tim there, and uh, I would like to probably, I think, agree with him, but I think the, the initial place where people's minds might go when we talk about a revolution of the underclass is the thinking of uh, such political shifts and moments in recent history, such as the election of, um, of Donald Trump, uh, and instances like Brexit, which continues to haunt British politics on a daily basis, which has become, you know, a sort of um, parody of itself multiple times over. Uh, whereas the issue with the election of Donald Trump, it's become, uh, you know, we, we've gone beyond parody almost with Trump, gone beyond satire even. And so I think based on Tim Jackson's review here, you'd have to have a very kind of particular sort of analysis that doesn't just lead to, you know, the, the horror of the underclass being related to the ostensibly democratic <laughs> results of, the, of, a, of a U.S. election, which can uh, uh, get very dicey. I know another Arts Fuse critic, Jeremy Jewell, who has said of the film, us is pretty much a direct challenge to ethnocentric progressivism, i.e. reparations, as are currently dividing socialists. And by this, what I think Jeremy might be getting at is the idea that we live in a, a time where the, the phrase purity politics or purity tests for politics is uh, often used, misused, overused. But at this point now, we've got instances where the entire 2020 Democratic primary field has been pushed further and further to the left as a result of the 2016 campaign by uh, Senator Sanders. And so what now the candidates find that they have to do in order to win the primary is not so much play to the elites that run the party. No doubt they will have their chance to try and run the show, as, they, as of course they did in 2016 as well, but to appeal to a, an unformed base perhaps as underclass from Tim Jackson's review, uh, even though, I mean, socialists these days, at least the new socialist movement, 
uh, as Amber Frost of Chapo Trap House points out, is either over the age of 80 or under the age of 35. And the younger people aren't exactly coming at it from a traditional working class politics. We've come out of college, we've come out of uh, uh, major urban you know, democratic strongholds, liberal society and all that kind of stuff, and we've moved left sort of with an academic or an intellectual uh, uh, compass as opposed, that coupled with some very real uh, material tra challenges as well, student debt, precarious work environments, uh, all kinds of anxieties that are associated with this particular younger generation. And yet we have issues like um, reparations, which I think in the abstract, most people support on the left in some sense, you know, that we, in the sense that we all agree that we need to have a massive redistribution of wealth. But you see the candidates that are proposing, you know, full reparations without necessarily describing exactly how, what that looks like or what it means, and nobody really has uh, a good description of what it means, using that, you know, to draw a wedge between more universal politics that, you know, might be about a massive redistribution of wealth to that very underclass that is not necessarily uh, based in color. Recently, we had an episode, or one of our earlier episodes, we talked about uh, the ethnocentrism of the play of the niceties, where one of the issues with that play is that it did ultimately hinge on race as opposed to on class. And in that play, it made sense, but then it was meant to, I think, encompass the broader uh, uh, social divide on the left itself. So there's a lot of fodder. Uh, for the film Us, and, and I look forward to seeing it myself, and, and hopefully many of you, if you have seen it, leave comments, tell me, you know, where I'm wrong, or what Jeremy's onto, or if you really liked Tim Jackson's review of it. Uh, Jordan Peele, I believe, is really out there trying to make good films above all else, especially good genre films, and so send us questions, comments, angry emails, all that good stuff. A little bit more from film now, from the arts views. We recently had Gerald Perry, our uh, veteran film critic, come back from South by Southwest. And the headline of this piece is Signs of Hope for American Indies at South by Southwest. Uh, the, the caption says that Gerald saw a handful of fiction films which were well-directed, capably acted, and offered meaningful stories. And... You would think that's a pretty low bar, and according to Gerald Perry, as uh, perhaps the bar is set quite low, actually, for his opinion about American independent dramas and narrative films. Uh, he begins by saying every attendee of the South by Southwest Film Festival creates his or her own path to follow, whether it's a geek and nerd diet of Seth Rogen's smutty humor and zombie midnight movies or a PC week of socially meaningful documentaries. Jerry usually skips the horror stuff and arrested comedies, eats his spinach with some good-for-me docs, but also ventures into an area where in recent years there's often little payoff, American independent narratives. These seem to have lost their way, buried by Netflix streaming and cable TV opportunities for enterprising young directors. Where is today's Jarmusch or Tarantino or the post-mumblecore maestros? I suppose I would say to Jerry that Tarantino still makes films, and so does Jim Jarmusch, uh, but I, I get his point. Going back a year, with the exception of Yen Tan's stirring AIDS drama 1985, Jerry had given up on indie narratives at the 2018 South by Southwest Festival, having <laughs> walked out of a half a dozen in the middle in despair. Jerry does not uh, suffer bad films, or films that he deems bad. But uh, this year, uh, Jerry was able to see uh, a number of uh, decent films. He doesn't call it a renaissance yet, but a just signal of hope that American indies are alive and kicking, and credit to Janet Peterson and her South by Southwest staff for finding them. Films that he considered uh, worthy of checking out are uh, St. Francis, calls it a brash, funny, savvy feminist comedy, a kind of Amy Schumer-style picture which works far better than anything Schumer has put on screen. The first time Chicago-based director of this totally woman-centered film is a talented man. Uh, ironically enough, I guess, Alex Thompson, his partner in life, Kelly O'Sullivan, is both the astute screenwriter and the charismatic, smart blonde screwball star. 
Now, one of the things about South by Southwest, uh, as Jerry observes, uh, more than any major film festival in the world, is that it skews young. Uh, many of the films curated with bright 20-somethings in mind as the audience. He doesn't have a problem with that per se, but he found it refreshing to see the film South Mountain. Uh, the main characters in South Mountain are all interestingly middle-aged, smart, beautifully written, effortless, effortlessly directed by Hilary Brower, uh, who is the head of Columbia University's film department. He wonders if it reads too transgressive into 1960s sexually adventurous for today's uptight PCers. Characters are in their 40s and 50s. They show their bodies without shame. Women sleep with guys who are far, far younger. A husband who has children with another woman and everyone is somewhat civilized about it. All of this may be okay for a French movie, but an American one, I for one applaud director Brower for her boldness and bravery. And finally, a film that stood out for Jerry at South by Southwest was The Mountain. It's formally arresting, and it's hard to find a correlative. He thinks perhaps Guy Madden, maybe even early Werner Herzog. The Mountain is the story of a comatose acting young man, Ty Sheridan, who's from the X-Men movies, who takes the road in the 50s as the assistant to a door-to-door salesman like Doctor, who's played by Jeff Goldblum whose speciality is peddling lobotomies. Need them or not. In a securitous way, the story leads to a reckoning with a crazy man with a daughter who could use a brain operation. The lunatic pop is played by French actor Denis Denis Arcand, who, great as he is, runs away from the film with too many speeches and too much unbridled-seeming improvisation. But kudos to filmmaker Alveson, who turning Eisenhower's placid America into an eerie Germanic Gothic nightmare. So if you thought there was no hope for American indie narratives, Gerald Perry says there might be some based on his recent excursion to South by Southwest. We have a book review from Steve Provisor. He's been a guest on the program, and he writes a lot about jazz, both contemporary stuff that's happening in the Boston area, album releases, trends, critique, theory. Uh, but this is a book review on creating the jazz solo, and it's uh, titled An Iconoclastic View. And for those of you who study jazz or follow the history of jazz, you know there are a lot of competing theories. It's a sensitive topic as well to consider the origins of jazz. You know, for instance, uh, many people had some issues with the Ken Burns jazz uh, documentary. And a lot of people might get their definitive views on certain things from uh, Ken Burns's documentaries, and they're presented almost as such. But uh, we know that the origins of jazz music are often disputed, and a lot of this has to do with race, place, uh, the influence of other kinds of music, con- controversially referring to jazz as American classical music, all kinds of issues of genre and historical analysis that are uh, essential to thinking about what is perhaps the most quintessential significant contribution of uh, American culture in the arts. The book Steve Reviews is by Vic Hobson called Creating the Jazz Solo, Louis Armstrong and Barbershop Harmony, and it comes from the University Press of Mississippi. 
Author Vic Hobson is British. Sometimes it takes someone from outside the U.S. to shake up our ideas about popular culture, in this case, jazz. Hobson's book is only 173 pages long, but for anyone invested in the early years of jazz, it packs an illuminating punch. It induced a hard look on the part of this reader about long-held, if somewhat fuzzy, theories about how jazz soloing was shaped, specifically the genesis of the innovations of Louis Armstrong in the 20s that created a template for future jazz soloing throughout the century. Because of the lack of recorded evidence, the early days of jazz are shrouded in a certain amount of mystery. There is no definitive version of how the music's formative elements came together. In the 19th century, black and white musical cultures intermingled. On the one hand, some discrete musical forms, field chants and hollers, ring shouts, spirituals, and preaching techniques were eventually subsumed under a larger blues umbrella. On the other hand, African Americans playing brass and strings in circus bands, string bands, and marching bands, becoming familiar with European compositional elements. Parlor music, a kind of watered-down version of later, provided encounters with techniques that black theater and ragtime composers drew on for their tunes. Barbershop groups performed a range of material, some of which can be classified as loosely deriving from Western sources. Vocal harmony itself is not a technique that was ubiquitous in African, in African music, and to some degree, African Americans adapted it from white courses and church choirs. Again, we are talking about conditions in the 19th century. What we would recognize as jazz would not come along for about 10 years. If the mythical Buddy Bolden cylinder is ever found, that chronology might change. The prevailing theory has it that out of this maelstrom of cross influences, blues and ragtime made elemental contributions, but that in large part the sophistication of jazz arose because of the influence of European harmony. This is the place where Hobson's book sets out to be disruptive. In one sense, Hobson bypasses the customary logjam. He doesn't examine the usual suspects that are seen as contributing to the formation of jazz. Rather than trying to parse the variety of influences, the volume argues that the importance of singing has been ignored or undervalued. Hobson argues that the kind of singing that influenced some of the most important early jazz musicians, especially Louis Armstrong, was close harmony singing, bass, baritone, lead tenor, and second tenor, what became known as barbershop quartet singing. If people hear the phrase barbershop quartet now, it probably conjures up visions of white guys with red-striped shirts and handlebar mustaches. The same kind of stereotyping happened to traditional jazz when it became Dixieland. Fairly recent scholarship, however, suggests that barbershop singing had African-American roots. Ironically, the group that spurred the revival of barbershop singing in the late 30s, and which still exists, the Society for the Preservation and Encouragement of Barbershop Quartet Singing in America, S-P-E-B-S-Q-S-A, declined black participation in the organization for decades. Hobson brings in the protagonists, whom we know had a major hand in creating jazz, Buddy Bolden and his musicians Willie Cornish and Brock Mumford, W.C. Handy, Kid Ory, Johnny Dodds, and King Oliver. All of these musicians had a background in close harmony singing. Let me add as an aside that Hobson does a terrific job filling us in on their biographies as they enter his story. None of these players have a story as well chronicled as Louis Armstrong. Although they sometimes provide contradictory information, Armstrong's autobiographies and interviews, as well as the biographies, give us a very full picture of his early musical life. And, in limbing the story of Armstrong's early singing experiences in great depth, Hobson crafts a model that would be easily applicable to those other, mostly New Orleans, musicians. Having read a lot about Armstrong myself, I was almost embarrassed at not having paid enough attention to his early singing experience. He himself often talked about the importance of singing in his playing, but most scholars emphasize Armstrong's love of opera and his occasional quoting of same in his solos. Although there is some disagreement about these dates, Armstrong seems to have begun singing when he was about nine years old, around 1909. He started playing hit-or-miss cornet a few years later. He didn't understand the instrument seriously until about 1913, and of course, continued to sing his entire life. 
his early singing experiences and these other early jazz musicians was a combination of the solfege system of do, re, mi, etc. that was taught in schools as well as experiences on the street. It's odd that, though solfege was widely taught, relatively few of these musicians could read music well. A number of them eventually improved their music reading skills while aboard the steamships of the Streckfuss Line, which plied the Mississippi under the musical direction of Fate Marable, or by playing the theater for acts that required consistency in the music. So in the barbershop groups, it was often the case that only one person could read. That performer would acquire the sheet music and discern what the proper melody line was for a new song that the group wanted to sing. Remember, this is mostly before the wide availability of recordings. He would sing the melody, and the other members of the group would find their proper parts based on the sound that had become acceptable practice in the quartet format, a sound that was pretty codified. Armstrong and several of the other musicians explicitly say that this was the technique that instrumental bands would also use to learn new material. The part being taken by a given instrument was dictated by the range in which it played, tuba or string bass doing the bass, the baritone part being carried by trombone, and the two tenor parts by trumpet and clarinet. Ultimately, the success or failure of the specifics of Hobson's theory stand or fall in musicological grounds. It would be very challenging for anyone who doesn't have a background in music to engage on this level. He tries to clarify matters as much as he can, transposing almost all his musical samples to the key of C and fully explaining what any given chord means. The process for me was made more difficult because of my prejudices regarding his ideas. When I listen to early Armstrong music or read transcriptions, I tend to filter my reactions through received wisdom about why particular notes were played. That is, I accept the primacy of the blues scale and the traditional presupposition that a European system of harmony was, in some way, guiding the musician through a solo. After examining a plethora of Hobson's examples, I began to come around to his way of thinking. What exactly was I buying into? As simply as I can put it, there were techniques of what is called voice leading that are applied in barbershop harmony. These are the rules that determine what the next note can be, bearing in mind all the other notes in the chord that have to be taken into consideration. I assume that these techniques were predicated on some combination of what sounded good in that era and what was feasible for someone to sing. In a number of cases, this meant choosing notes that would not be correct in a standard harmonic sense. Such notes might be out of the chord as then understood and or create dissonances that were supposed to be avoided. Snakes, swipes, funnel harmony are some of the terms used to denote the moves that a voice could or would make. Hobson does close analyses of Armstrong solos in Copenhagen heebie-jeebies, potato-head blues, and other tunes in order to show the reader that many of the choices Armstrong makes are rooted in his considerable background in barbershop singing. He comes up with ample quotes from Armstrong to back up the idea that he was not playing the chord per se, but how the chord sounded to him, and what that sound led him to play. As filtered through his long experience with close harmony singing, I had, in fact, often wondered about certain note choices that Armstrong made in his solos, and this explanation helped clarify some of these choices for me. The non-musically literate might find the technical parts of the book tough going, but will still enjoy reading the book for the rich, detailed history it provides about the music and the biographies of Armstrong and other important jazz figures. Veteran readers of jazz history and musicians will find new wrinkles here, and may well become engrossed as I was, and figuring out the musical ciphers that Hobson examines. Rarely does a book leave me questioning the ways in which I understood or thought I understood the construction of some of the most formative solos in jazz history. Kudos, Vic.
As you know, the Arts Fuse is dedicated to bringing you the best in arts criticism and coverage in the Boston area and beyond, and we try to bring you as many great things to check out in the area as possible on our coming attractions pages. So this is what will light your fire over the next few weeks. There are a ton of film festivals going on right now. We just missed the Irish Film Festival this past weekend. Uh, but we've got the 18th Boston Turkish Film Festival going on through April 7th at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Turkey produces a number of great films, and in this country they can be seen in this setting. This year's program features emerging and established Turkish filmmakers. The opening film is The Wild Pear Tree by Nuri Bilge Ceylon. The program also features a Turkish cinema classic from the 70s, The Bus, A Refugee Story and Tolga Karcelik's feature film Butterflies, which was the winner of the Sundance Film Festival's Grand Jury Prize. For more information and a full schedule on the Boston Turkish Film Festival, please visit bostonturkishfilmfestival.org. We've also got the 18th Annual International Film Series, which presents the best from world cinema on consecutive Mondays at the Studio Cinema in Belmont, Massachusetts. Uh, two films left in that series. On April 1st, you can see The Heiresses, a film from Paraguay, a multiple Berlin Film Festival winner about a once wealthy older woman who, who resumes driving again as a cabbie after her girlfriend is imprisoned on fraud charges. After the protagonist starts up a local taxi service for a group of wealthy elderly ladies, she meets an exciting younger woman who changes her life. On April 8th, you can see Jurga or Jurga from Australia. It's its East Coast premiere. This is a modern morality tale about a former Australian soldier who returns to Afghanistan to seek forgiveness from the family of a civilian he accidentally killed during the war. This was Australia's Oscar submission for Best Foreign Language Film. The uh, Wicked Queer Film Festival, I guess Wicked Queer Film Festival, from March 8th through April 7th at various venues in the Boston area. The Wicked Queer Film Festival, formerly known as the Boston LGBT Film Festival, is celebrating its 35th anniversary with screenings at the MFA, French Cultural Center, uh, the Brattle Theater, and the Paramount Theater at Emerson. This year, the emphasis is on queer history. The fest is revisiting some classics of queer cinema. The opening film is the Dutch romance Just Friends, followed by an opening night party at Beat Brew Hall in Harvard Square. The final film on April 7th is the award-winning Paraguayan film The Heiresses. So you, if you don't catch it during the International Film Fest series, you can catch it during this festival at the Museum of Fine Arts. You can find the complete schedule of films for the Wicked Queer Film Festival at wickedqueer.org. The Salem Film Fest is also going on March 29th to April 4th. It's the largest all-documentary film festival in Massachusetts, returning for its 12th season with more than 30 films from around the world. Events include talks with visiting filmmakers, screenings, parties, and forums. Salem Film Fest also showcases a variety of local musicians and bands. Screenings will be at the Cinema Salem, National Park Service Visitor Center, Peabody Essex, uh, at the Morse Theater there, and a couple of other venues in nearby Beverly and Peabody. Jazz coming up in the area, Jasmia Horn, March 28th, 
7 o'clock at Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. She's a 28-year-old Dallas-born singer. She's the winner of the 2015 Thelonious Monk International Vocal Competition as well. March 29th, Danilo Perez uh, and, El- and Amir El Safar. That's at the Sanders Theater in Cambridge. It's a provocative double bill, really, that uh, you don't want to miss. And on March 30th, you can catch Carla Blay, Andy Shepard, and Steve Swallow at the Regatta Bar. If you want to get out of town a little bit, you can head down to New Haven, Connecticut on April 6th and 7th to see the third annual Create Festival. The Create Festival is a rare opportunity to spend some time with the work and person of Wadada Leo Smith. In the visual arts, you can see Howard Wardana Pindell, What Remains to be Seen, through May 19th at Rose Art Museum in Waltham. Work that spans the artist's 50-plus year career, this exhibition looks at the many styles, materials, and investigations of Howardina Pindell. Through December 3rd, so you pretty much have all year to see this one, you can see Huma Baba's They Live, that's at the ICA in Boston. Huma Baba transforms familiar materials into unsettling objects. Hybridity, central theme of the artist's work, exploring the many expressive capabilities of the figure via a plethora of intersex, multi-ethnic forms. That's at the ICA. In theater, Romeo and Juliet is playing at the Huntington, uh, written by a little-known writer named, uh, I guess it's Bill, Bill Shakespeare. This one's directed by Peter Dubois, uh, staged by the Huntington, and will play through March 31st. So you've only got this weekend to actually see that as well. I saw that one. It was pretty good. Uh, if you can sort of get past the somewhat cringeworthy, actually, no, I'll take that back. I was skeptical going in because honestly, who wants to see Romeo and Juliet again is what I was thinking until you start to see Romeo and Juliet and you realize what a fantastic play it actually is and continues to be. And I was, I was happy that it did not take a, you know, Democrats, Republicans, anti-Trump, Trump type uh, interpretation or view of the Capulets and Montagues, because of course, really, the squabble between the families in Romeo and Juliet is is really quite secondary at at most in the play. It's not a it's not Hatfields and McCoys, you know the the the, the Capulets and the Montagues are really just punks. You know, it, it would be as if today, you know, the Kardashians and the the Trumps were feuding or something like that. You know, who who gives a shit is really what our most reasonable response should be to something like that you know the, the the play is the play is about so much more than that i think when tony soprano says the line or asks one of his gangster buddies you know why is it that you know where we piss shit and fuck are all located within you know half an inch of each other whatever it is uh his his friend says to him you know like philosophers of history have been trying to figure this out since the dawn of time that gets to a summary of what Romeo and Juliet is about more so than any kind of division between two factions or two sides or something like that. Uh, worth seeing, worth checking out. It's got some interesting kind of modern updates uh, and it's got a uh, WWF style brawl towards the beginning of it if, if, uh, if you don't mind a little bit of over-the-top action in your Shakespeare. Once is also playing... Uh, the Glen Answered play from Ireland, directed by Paul Malone, staged by Speakeasy. Uh, you can see it at the Roberts Studio Theater in Stanford Calderwood Pavilion at the Boston Center for the Arts. That's down on Tremont Street in the South End. Dragon Cycle, Not Medea, Cardboard Piano, Photograph 51, and a few others are also out there, as well as a bunch of more Shakespeare. Twelfth Night is uh, going on at the lyric stage, and Macbeth is going on from April 5th through the 13th uh, at Underlings Theater uh, over in Watertown. If books are your thing, check out Laurie Katz, uh, author of Liar Laurie, Breaking the Silence on Sexual Assault, March 28th at the Brookline Booksmith in Coolidge Corner. Adam Abramovich in talking about a... or 
author of A Town Called Malice. March 29th at Brookline Booksmiths, Chris Friswick, The Ghost Manuscript, April 2nd, Porter Square Books in Cambridge. Grace Tillison, The Body Papers, at Porter Square on April 3rd. So that's coming attractions. That will That is what will light your fire in the coming weeks around the Boston area. Of course, for a complete list and rundown of all of the things that you can see in coming attractions from March 24th through April 9th, please go to artsfuse.org. That's A-R-T-S-F-U-S-E dot O-R-G. Uh, if you've got the means, the inclination, the time, the, uh, the pity, uh, please visit the Artsfuse's Patreon. That's uh, patreon.com slash theartsfuse. And uh, throw us a few bucks if you can. All that money goes into helping us pay our writers and critics who cover the arts and bring you consistent, great coverage about books, music, jazz, film, media, the Boston area, beyond and around the world, which sadly do not get covered as much or as in-depth as they probably should. We very much appreciate every dollar that you might be able to share with us. Stay tuned for some bonus material from our conversation with Pulitzer Prize winner, poet, critic, and professor, Lloyd Schwartz. Rada Angolumo Nerden Bilden, Benim Angumbu, Degelmi. Is this Romanian? Turkish. Oh, okay. Check one, two, check, check, check. Oh. Check. It's, it's this. Hello. It's oh, okay. this book in Turkish. Oh, Minik Opukta. We got something to offer the like three monthly uh, donut donors that we have. Well, one of them being myself. Yeah. <laughs> so um, as, a know, pro- just... as a proxy, though. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, really... I'm the slush fund for yeah. for for, for Dorothy. Yeah. Just to have them. I mean, you know, whatever. Was that an hour's worth of, of recording just there? That was about an hour. Oh, okay. Um, so Perfect. there's not so... actually a lot that I, I I'm thinking of cutting. Right, um, that works really so, well. So I think plus it's great because you got all this radio experience, so you have like a really great radio voice. I didn't even kinda... get through your bio. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we could have done about a bunch of other stuff. Programs, yeah. the fact that you have a Pulitzer mm-hmm. Prize, and classical you know, music. Like... We can talk about that. Yes, classical music. You you've showed up in the arts views a number of times, if not you know like as a writer, but like you're referenced multiple times there, in a number of articles. You know, I I I edited. Um, uh, a collection of Elizabeth Bishop's prose, right. really pretty complete collection. Um, the best review of that of that volume was in the Arts Views. Mm. It was a guy named Dan Bosch. I've um, heard the name. I don't know. Yeah, he's he used to live around here, but he's not around anymore. Uh, not around here, and um, it was. Absolutely, the smartest review. One of really one of the best reviews of of Bishop, and it was not her poems; it was her prose. But it was really smart, and I was actually I learned something from that review. And um, I, you know, three cheers for for Bill to to um, um, have that done. And now he's got us. Yeah, now it's falling <laughs> in the hands of, of my... Of, yeah. Well, he was telling me about... Um, remember that book, The Sympathizer? Did you read that? I did. That was yeah, a great novel. It's an amazing novel, yeah. And apparently he said that the author liked Harvey Bloom's review of it, hmm. I guess, best of whatever other reviews Maybe you read, have, and sent him an autographed copy saying, I really appreciate that well, you... We you know, should keep a lookout for if Viet Cong Nguyen is ever in Boston and have him on the show. Oh, yeah. That'd be amazing. So uh, let me read you two more poems. Yeah. So I sh- I'm just going to tell you what's, what's behind this poem. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, the Paris Review had a challenge for, po- for poets. And they had a bunch of, um, they had a list of very famous titles and the challenge was to write a new poem with one of those titles. So this is this is my contribution um, to that uh, enterprise. Howl. 
How'll I learn my lines if there isn't any script? How'll I find my shoes if I can't find my glasses? How'll I get to a hundred if I can't get past eleven? How'll I get to first base if you don't open the ballpark? How'll I get to Paris unless I review the situation? How'll I keep the wolf from the car? How'll I starve the fever if I've got to feed the cold? How'll I burst joy's grape? How'll we make our sun stand still? How'll we stop without a farmhouse near? Who'll play with the mice when the cat's away? Who'll put out the light and then put out the light? What'll I do with just a photograph to tell my troubles to? What'll I do? How'll I pass through the universities with radiant, cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake Light tragedy among the scholars of war? How'll I eat shit without having visions? How'll I find the party? How'll I get home? How'll we end the war in Spain? How'll I get to heaven? And, um, Can I just ask real quick? Sure. Because you were saying you were in New York in the 50s, right? I was. So then, did you bump into the Beats in any way? No, I met I was a kid. I met Ginsburg later. Mm. I, 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 um, what was it? There was, I think I was coming back from the lunch at Columbia University for the Pulitzer, and I had been invited to George Plimpton's house, Paris Review, uh, his, his house, apartment, his amazing place. And Ginsburg was there. And um, my dad has a very has, nice has a later Ginsburg story as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so my dad used to be um, uh, a radical. And, and uh, used to be. I mean, I mean, he still he still is. He's just he's. He but was, it used to be too. He he was he was he was exiled from the particular uh-huh. split off group of the split off group of the split off group that he was a member of. Um, but he was sent as an emissary to. Uh, I forget the guy's name now. He was a, a New York socialist, and he was I think a candidate for president that year for the oh. socialist party. And I guess this guy was friends with Ginsburg. Wow. And so my dad is That's sent from this likely. this uh, this Trotskyist group that my dad was a part of in New York in the eighties to go talk to the Socialist Party candidate as as far as like either organizing a march or something like discussing the party line or you know whatever you know the slogans that were going to be permitted or not permitted and uh, there's this um, sort of um, rotund uh, bald bearded fellow in a one of those four-legged tubs in the middle of this socialist candidate's crummy Greenwich Village apartments. <laughs> and he's just overall from the other side of the room just going, oh. And he didn't say a word. He didn't, you know, introduce himself or anything like that. But my dad, who had, you know, read a few poems in his life, was like, holy shit, that's Ginsburg. Yeah. <laughs> so. Alan Ginsburg. Wow. Yeah. I loved him. I, I thought he was just great. And the, the 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 line that you may not a lot of this is in that that Howell poem mm-hmm. is a lot of literary allusion, mm-hmm. and after the Ginsburg line that's obvious, right. the how I eat shit without having visions is a Ginsburg line from one of my favorite. It's a little Ginsburg poem um, that is just magical, and I love that line. Is that a psilocybin reference to some degree, or no. is it, or is it more of a kind of like literally like, uh, or or, or, or the literal figurative? He's he's it's a it's it's a um, it's a mock translation of Catullus, hmm. and it might be to Frank O'Hara, and the title which I can't. I can, can practically recite the whole poem, but I can't recite the title because I can't remember it because it's in Latin. It's actually a poem about meeting Peter Olofsky. Okay. Um, and he's yeah. just, it's a little tiny poem and it's about falling in love. And he says, 
it's hard to eat shit without having visions. And he's now he has this 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 little angel hipster who mm. he's just fallen in love with. And they stuck together for a pretty long time. They I mean, really they were, did. It was a real thing. Yeah, it was a real thing. So I'm going to read one more poem. Please, thank you. And I and I I can say that this is a um, two things about this. It's it's a dialogue poem, and it's a sestina. Three things, and it's the shortest possible sestina, which I'm very proud of because sestinas are really hard to write and a lot of sestinas are really boring <laughs> because they're 39 lines long this is 39 lines it's called six words yes no maybe sometimes always never never yes always no sometimes maybe maybe never sometimes yes no always always maybe no never yes sometimes sometimes always yes maybe never no no sometimes never always maybe yes yes no maybe sometimes always never again a poem that's meant to be read aloud really it seems yeah you know yeah it's a poem i like reading out yeah loud. i think i've heard you read that before oh it's possible i, yeah. I read it almost every time i have a chance to to read it sounds it sounds very familiar so this and it was this was um because I, Sestinas are very useful assignments in creative writing classes because you really have to play with words and you have to be inventive in some respect. And I would assign this to my creative writing class. And every now and then some wise ass in the class would say, well, have you ever written a Sestina? And I would have to say no. And finally I thought, I, I have to write a Sestina, but I have to write my own mm. Sestina. And my own, my, my own Sestina would be the shortest possible Sestina. Sure, right, right. So that's, 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 that's that one. It was, I, it was David McReynolds, by the way, was the, the Socialist Party candidate for president. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> yeah. But that's neither here nor there. Thank you again, Lloyd, very much for... For reading, thank you for 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 sharing your time with us and your stories. Oh, oh my pleasure, really, my pleasure. Um, um, uh, there are there the, the, there are these sort of fringe benefits of this um, poet laureate gig, and um, it's been very nice. Are you, they going to ask you to read stuff in public for special occasions? Or yeah. they, they are not going to ask me to do anything. And we're not recording, are we? 